Welcome to Taxland with me, Sarah Lancaster. And me, Fletch Heineman. Now, Fletch, in this episode, we're going to be talking about something that I reckon is probably one of your favourite topics of all time, uh, and that is residency, and more particularly the modernised residency rules for individuals. Wow, you can say that 10 times quickly. Um, So residency for taxpayers is obviously an important topic, but at the moment we've got some new rules that have been sort of floated and spoken about for quite some time now, um, and some old law, and I use the inverted commas for old law, um, which we presumably still need to look at. So to start us off, what's the biggest mistake you're seeing with taxpayers, you know, wondering if they're going to become Australian tax residents or, you know, Australian tax residents who are living in the country now and looking to move overseas? Yeah, good question. I think the most common thing that I'm seeing at the moment is uncertainty with the existing rules compared to the new rules. Um, and if we look back at what we've got in terms of the existing rules, so we've got four tests that you can be a tax resident of Australia under any one of those four tests, um, and the proposed new rules do away with all four of those tests and replace them with a whole new set of uh, tests that we've got to, to go through. Um, but in terms of if I had to pick one set of facts that's easily the most common mistake. You do. This is a requirement for today. Excellent. Um, it has to be that somebody will come uh, back with a set of facts and they'll be comfortable that they're a non-resident because they've got a house and a job overseas and they're in Australia for less than 183 days in any income year. And, of course, the problem with that is it mushes up three tests and pretty much gets all three of them wrong. So um, I mean, really the, the risk issue that we see with that is that our first test, whether somebody resides in Australia based on the ordinary meaning of the word resides, um, has got nothing to do with the day count. It's got nothing to do with what you've got overseas. And it's really testing the nature of somebody's presence when they're in Australia. Uh, and people forget that sometimes if you've got for example, a house and family in Australia and you're coming to visit them and that's become so regular and it becomes a part of the what they call the settled order of your life, um, then that's consistent with somebody residing in Australia and being a tax resident here. All righty then. Um, well, that's, I guess, a good summary, I think, of um, how the mistakes can be made conflating the tests. And um, I guess one of the purposes of the new rules is to make all that process certain and a little bit more simplified, uh, but we'll get into whether or not that's actually happened in a little bit later on. Um, okay, so you've had a number of successful results in residency cases over the years, um, probably most notably and recently recently as the Harding decision. Um, Now, I think that that case is important because it was handed down just before the um, board, the tax board gives us its 2019 report, which brought about the recommendations to the changes on the individual residency rules. Um, Can you run us through a little bit um, about what happened in Harding um, and what the the full court said in Harding in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, what the the Harding fact pattern was really interesting and it was quite a, you know, all of these facts, all of these cases have very different facts, um, but the facts in Harding come up a lot in residency disputes. Mm. So in his particular case, he was living and working in the Middle East for a long period of time, so, so 10 plus years in the Middle East. Um, his wife and children at the time decided that they were going to come back to Australia and part of that was prompted by some issues with the security situation in Saudi Arabia at the time. 
Um, Mr. Harding then came back a couple of years later after his wife and kids, um, and he started living on the Sunshine Coast, and that was accepted. Um, then he made the decision, though, that he didn't like the Sunshine Coast, which is a bit crazy Who because the Sunshine Coast <laughs> is a lovely place to uh, to live. Um, and but he loved the Middle East, so he wanted to return to the Middle East, and he did. So he took up a, a new full time job in the Middle East, um, left Australia, started working in the Middle East. Um, and that was where he started to make his life. Now, the initial plan that he had with his wife was that she was going to follow him about 18 months later when their middle boy had finished school, um, and that never came to to pass. And so in the income years that the ATO were looking at, what you saw was a spouse and a house uh, in Australia, which is Classic. That, um, <laughs> uh, that phrase that will, uh, will catch a lot of taxpayers in residency disputes. Um, and in the income year that we're talking about, Mr. Harding was in Australia for it was either 90 or 91 days. So we're well, well under the 183-day mark. Yeah. But we're back in that fact pattern that we've got a taxpayer coming to Australia. The commissioner sees a spouse, dependent children, a house available. And so we really have got a question then as to whether he's residing in Australia. Yes, he is residing in Saudi Arabia or the Middle East at the same time, but is he also residing in Australia? And the case law is really clear that you can reside in more than one place at the same time. So, um, yeah, the, the first instance decision um, held that Mr Harding um, did not reside in Australia and that really put emphasis on his intention. So it was very relevant that he intended to stay overseas, he intended to depart Australia permanently um, his wife gave evidence that, yes, that was the plan, that she was going to go over and, no, it didn't come to pass and um, you know, their That's relationship life, hey? was yep. affected by that. Um, but the key part of that was that the court accepted Mr Harding's intention was that he was going to go and live and work overseas and that that was part of abandoning his residence in Australia. So um, after um, on that ordinary meaning of the word resides test, that then got accepted on appeal uh, mm-hmm. to the full federal court. So we had pretty much four judges in alignment that that was the ordinary meaning of the word resides test. And then the appeal point was won uh, by Mr Harding on the permanent place of abode question. So um, he conceded that he had an Australian domicile and then the question was, well, did he establish his permanent place of abode outside Australia? And really the question that that resolved was that it didn't matter if you were going to live in a particular apartment or a service department or a hotel or whatever the nature of the accommodation was overseas, that's not relevant at all. And what the test is asking us to consider is whether somebody had abandoned their residence in Australia um, and then had identified a country or a place, as in permanent place of abode, the place could be a town, a city or a country that they were going to live Mm. permanently overseas. So um, certainly it'll still catch people who are residents of nowhere, so people who aren't settling anywhere um, will fail the permanent place of abode test. But it didn't matter in Mr Harding's case that he moved into a one-bedroom apartment for 12 months with the intention to move into a two-bedroom apartment. That, that wasn't making the nature of his accommodation temporary. Okay, great. So um, I guess Harding has decided it's probably a good time for us to run through, I guess, what the existing or, you know, the potential old law is right now on residency um, for individuals um, in Australia. Um, so did you want to run us through the four tests, probably starting with the, you know, ordinary, ordinarily con- ordinary meaning of resides concept? Um, it's a good place to start. Best place to start. Yeah. Um, 
So the ordinary meaning of the word resides, so the, the section says resides, um, includes all these different things, which is the second, third, and fourth tests, but it means where a person resides. So when we talk about ordinary concepts or the ordinary meaning of the word resides, we're just looking at what does the word resides means. And there's a, uh, a long history of case law on that point that goes uh, way back into the 19th century English cases. There's some great cases um, about Glasgow mariners who um, spent 11 months of the year out at sea but then would return for one month a year. I don't know which month that was, <laughs> by the way, but would return one month uh, a year back to their home in Glasgow and were still held to reside um, in the in UK um, on the basis that they had a physical connection with a particular place in that they continued to return to it and an intention to treat that place as home. So in Australia, that gets developed into um, through a case called HAVSA, um, which then gets accepted in our tax cases. But um, really, we're looking at two elements. The first is physical presence in Australia. So somebody who continues to return to a particular place in Australia, which really gives us the spouse and the house. Um, um, Fact scenario, yeah. Yeah. And, but then the second element is then you've got to have an intention to return to that place and an attitude that that place is your home. So that will catch the difference between somebody who keeps returning to Australia, say for Christmas and New Year's for two or three weeks over holidays every year, um, and who is staying, you know, as a guest with friends and family mm. or staying in hotels or Airbnbs, but for the purpose of visiting Australia, that will call out those particular fact patterns as somebody who's visiting Australia as opposed to a returning resident where somebody comes back to Australia as part of you know, the regular order of their life. Yeah. And then for the purpose of intention, we often find intention in the tax legislation is a bit of a hard concept to prove and you know, different provisions will require a subjective test, other provisions will require an objective test. So how do you go about proving someone's intention? Is it enough for you know, for the taxpayer to turn up at court and give evidence that, you know, I intended I intended to live overseas. I was only coming here for a holiday. I intended to go back to my home, um, you know, potentially my spouse overseas. Yeah, so um, you know from the disputes that we've done in tax matters that intention often plays out in passenger cards and the little box that you tick on a passenger card as to whether you return, you intend to return as an Australian resident. Do you know uh, what? That is one thing that I've learned over the years to pay particular att- particular <laughs> attention to the little check boxes that you see in any form, in anywhere, particularly the passenger cards. Yeah, and we've had folders and folders of tribunal yeah. documents that copy and paste everybody's immigration cards. Unfortunately, these days, there's only an inbound card. There's not an outbound so card true. <laughs> as well. Um, but so intention here, we're looking at a subjective test, but so the, the taxpayer's statement, so somebody, if a taxpayer makes a, a statement and it's, and it's sworn under oath, um, then that's going to be good evidence as to what their intention was. Of course, it would be up to the, the commissioner to then contradict that with any other sort of evidence that goes against that. Um, but really, if we go back to, to Mr. Harding's case, for example, um, that was the case there is that he had a subjective intention that he was departing Australia permanently and wanted to stop residing in Australia. Um, and that was then corroborated with a whole set of objective factors in that his days in Australia um, came down very quickly. Um, he then 
moved his life to the Middle East. Obviously, the sort of um, the ultimate corroborating evidence in his, in his case was that he ended up breaking up with his wife, wife over yeah. the, the subsequent income years. So um, it's it would be difficult for the taxpayer to maintain their position by just on the basis of their statements. They would need to have other evidence to corroborate it. Um, but, of course, their subjective intention is relevant. And because this is critical to all the disputes, um, and I'm sure we'll get to it in the, the new rules, that's exactly something that they wanted scrapped out in the new rules was um, they didn't like that taxpayers were winning by saying, um, this is my stated intention, and it was then corroborated. And the, the commissioner was losing some of those cases because um, he had put the taxpayer to proof mm. and the taxpayer had successfully met their burden of proof in those cases. Yeah. Okay. So it's an ordinary uh, concepts test. What comes next when we're looking at the domestic position in Australia? Yeah. So second test, the domicile and permanent place of abode test. So only applies if somebody has an Australian domicile. And domicile um, can be a complicated concept in terms of its starting position. But once you've established a domicile of either origin being Australia or a domicile of choice, being that you intend to make your home indefinitely in Australia, um, then once you have that Australian domicile, then you have to fall within the the carve-out, which is that your permanent place of abode is outside Australia. Um, and permanent in this context doesn't mean forever. It just means not temporary or transitory. Uh, and then, of course, we, we sit on a spectrum of, well, what's temporary or transitory? Um, and for a long period of time, the commissioner gave us a rule of thumb of two years to say anything more than two years was probably not temporary or transitory. Bear in mind, it was just a rule of thumb and there were lots of factors mm. to consider. But I think that that was what most advisors were using at that period of time. Something less than that um, was probably not sufficient to establish your permanent place of abode outside Australia. All right. So they're the first two tests. What about the third test? So the third test is what we call the 183-day test. So it will just count the number of days that you're in Australia in an income year. So relatively straightforward. Easily the biggest mistake with the 183-day test is people forgetting that you might be in Australia for 90 days, 120 days, 140 days, or often 182 days. And if you're in Australia for 182 days, um, you may be residing here under the ordinary meaning of the word resides test. So that's the real catch there. If you did happen to go over 183 days and you didn't intend to reside here, um, and we saw a a host of these cases during COVID where people Mm. got stuck uh, in Australia. Um, I had an interesting case where somebody got stuck uh, in Australia because they couldn't get clearance to sail their yacht outside of Australia um, for a particular (laughs) period of time. Um, So there's then a carve out that says even if you're here more than 183 or 183 days or more, in an income year, if you have your usual place of abode outside Australia and you don't intend to take up residence in Australia, um, then the commissioner can be satisfied that you're not a tax resident of Australia under that that 183-day test. Yeah. Okay. And then the final one, uh, Commonwealth superannuation funds? Yeah. So specific tests for Commonwealth employees. So typically will be relevant for anyone who is under the old CSS or PSS uh, schemes, schemes yeah. um, and these days, you know, we're really questioning people who are currently employed with the um, the Commonwealth government um, or members of embassies, the armed forces, 
that sort of thing is really where we're checking whether somebody's caught by that definition. Yep. Okay. So they're the four tests then under the domestic law as it currently exists. Um, we've got the modernised rules that um, sort of the the board um, presented to the government in 2017. Where did the modernised rules come from and what was the big, what's the big problem, I guess, with the law as it exists in Australia at the moment? Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps controversially, there was um, there were a series of cases just before 2016 where the ATO was not successful in those cases. So, I mean, just to go back a step before that, um, before 1 July 2009, there was the old um, foreign employment income exemption. Mm. So, essentially, if you had continuous employment for overseas and you met the conditions in that section, then your foreign employment income was exempt regardless of your residency status. So up until 1 July 2009, often it didn't matter. Taxpayers, whether they were resident or not, if they were working overseas in generating employment income, it was probably going to be exempt anyway. anyway. But when those rules changed and were significantly cut down to just apply to you know, aid organisations and that sort of thing from 1 July 2009, it then meant that... Um, for taxpayers who are living and working overseas, if they continue to be Australian tax residents, then suddenly their income was taxed in Australia. At um, you know, a lot of these cases, the contracts are very lucrative, so they were then up at top marginal rates. And for taxpayers who were otherwise working, for example, in the Middle East, the difference between zero percent and then forty-seven percent now is massive. Pretty significant. Yeah. Pretty significant. Um, so. There was a, a whole stack of audit activity that started from 2011 and 2012, which you will remember fondly. Very fondly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that uh, started to go through the tribunals from 2012 to 2014. There was a whole stack of cases. Yeah. And I think the the board picked up on there was a level of unpredictability of the answers in those cases. But um, to be fair, that level of unpredictability just become comes out of the the fact that you've got different facts. So they were all very specific sets of circumstances um, and it was difficult to pick a theme for that, but only because the taxpayer circumstances were so very different. Yeah, it's just the nature of the beast, I think. You know, when you're looking at, um, you know, established law that will have a different outcome depending on the factual circumstances, that shouldn't be surprising in and of itself. I mean, that's the task that yeah, the the Part 4C process has to run through. It's the task for the administration. It's the task for the courts to decide or the tribunals to decide afterwards on a merits review. Um, but in any event, you know, <laughs> everyone's looking for certainty and <laughs> to fit a special fact pattern into their own fact pattern to draw the same conclusion. So I think it's just a part of human nature as well. Okay. You get the same problem with the payroll tax issues for the medical centres that we were talking about last week really too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that um, we've noticed over the, the last, say, 10 years, so we're still operating under the same rules now as we were in 2011 and 2012, mm. But both um, taxpayers have become more aware of the risks during that time. Um, and so we see less audit activity now compared to 10 years ago where we had a taxpayer who was um, living and working overseas, maintaining that they were a non-resident but was supporting a spouse and dependent children in Australia. In Australia so yeah. typically your high-risk fact pattern for 
um, that ordinary meaning of the word resides test. Now, those cases, there was a massive volume of those cases um, through that period. And you can understand why, because it just took a couple of income years for that to filter through that taxpayers who previously had exempt foreign employment income were now subject to tax on it. <laughs> they certainly weren't keen to be told that they were subject to tax on that employment income. Um, and yeah, then it takes a bit of time for taxpayers to adjust their behaviour. Um, I, I think also there was some uh, learnings uh, from the commissioner's side during the same period um, where there were some cases that he was uh, taking on that weren't suitable cases um, in terms of trying to say that a taxpayer had uh, quite tenuous connections with Australia and was therefore an Australian tax resident. Yeah. Um, and we had a, a case in 2014 called Dempsey that was that went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, and, I mean, great example of that case, Mr Dempsey was, at the time, uh, I hope I do him justice here, it would have been in his late 50s or, or early 60s and close to retirement. Um, he was living by himself on a place on the, the Gold Coast, had an opportunity to take up a job in, in Saudi Arabia. He was an engineer. Um, great opportunity from a professional point mm. of view, and he, he thought that, uh, that he would have a go at that. So, um, so he locked up his place on the Gold Coast, moved overseas permanently, um, and started living and working in Saudi Arabia, and that was his job. And he, he came back to Australia fairly irregularly, um, he caught up when he came back to Australia with his, his kids, but his kids were grown up by that stage, um, so not not dependents. And there was interesting evidence in terms of how he left his place. So he you know, he uh, he bolted his garage door shut, and he turned his fridge off, and he put stuff over his furniture. So it was not consistent with somebody continuing to live Planning in Australia. Planning to come back, yeah. Uh, but the commissioner saw house and saw a lot of money coming back to Australia and um, and continued to um, maintain the position he was an Australian tax resident. So, yeah, it, the cases have moved a lot um, since then. And I, I think where we had a lot of disputes before the Board of Tax started their process, those disputes, yes, they're there, but this is tax law. There's always going to be disputes at the margins. With so, any luck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the board starts its review off its own bat, say, in May 2016. Oh, I mm -hmm. just want to get the time frame and the timeline in because um, it's um, it's important, I think. So the board presents those findings after it does does its internal review to the early or to the last government in 2017. Mm -hmm. Then in May 2018, the government responds. In 2018 in September, we get the review of income tax residency for individuals consultation guide. There's a consultation process that happens there. Mm -hmm. Then in 2019, we received the final individual tax residency rules, a model for modernisation report. Um, that report uh, goes to the former government and that's where we see this concept of adhesive residency, which I'm going to be talking about with you in a lot of detail later on. I know it's your favourite. Um, yep. And in May uh, 2021, the former government says that they're going to replace the current residency rules with the recommendations in the report. Um, I remember the mayhem that ensued when that announcement mm. came out. But, you know, we're, what, some two years down the track now. We haven't seen any draft legislation. We've had a change of government as well. So that, I guess, then brings to um, the most recent consultation 
paper that came out in July this year. And the message, or I guess the introduction to that paper is really that um, the they're looking for feedback um, to guide a decision on whether or not to proceed with the recommendations that were in um, the 2019 report. So I think it's fair to say that it hasn't been a short process um, <laughs> <laughs> determining what the new rules of residency will be. Um, but it's also, I guess, given that stretch of time, there's been a number of cases that were considered sort of between the release of the 2019 report um, and 2021 when the government comes out and says that they're going to take on board the recommendations and replace the residency rules. Sorry, I should say the former government. Mm. So um, there's been some pretty significant decisions um, from the federal court in that space of time, probably starting with Stockton, if you wanted to talk about, I guess, that. Yeah, so I think um, we had Stockton and Addy came down um, in pretty close uh, Mm. time frame. So um, Stockton was the US citizen and she was in Australia on a, um, do they call it a gap year in the oh, US? I still call it. Oh yeah. Well, you know, we still were, we were talking about it in Australia. We call it a gap year. We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so she was in Australia for, for nine months and, um, was moving around and seeing as much as she could in Australia during that, that period of time. Um, Ms. Addy, she was a UK national and she came to Australia. It was slightly longer period for 18 months, but similarly on the basis that she was here on a, on a working holiday mm. to, to see as much of Australia as, as she could. So um, I think the, the common theme for those cases, and I mean, Addy goes up and gets appealed to the, the High Court for a different reason to do with whether you know, those working visas offended the discrimination article in the um, the double tax agreement between Australia and the UK. But putting that aside, really what we had then was the federal court giving very clear direction in terms of what the tests for residency were um, and an acceptance that there'll be fact patterns that, um, you know, need to be considered. And a lot of the time the court will say, look, there's not much point going over all of the old cases in terms of the fact pattern, trying to draw analogies with those old cases compared to what we've got here. Really for that ordinary meaning of the word resides test, we're looking at does the taxpayer have a physical presence in Australia and what's their intention when they're in Australia? Is that consistent with residing here or is this that consistent with somebody's somebody who is visiting mm. here? So yeah, the difference really is that after the Board of Tax started its process, those cases um, started to be heard by the federal court and the federal court was delivering judgments that were very clear, uh, certainly um, with respect in their minds, as to what the test was um, and how it would be applied in certain circumstances. Um, and I think that the timing of that, if we think about COVID kicking in from about mm. March 2020, the interesting part about that as well is that the current residency rules did really well with COVID. So where people suddenly got caught in Australia, putting aside the 183-day test exception, but you know some people would get stuck in Australia for periods of time. Um, and the current definition for ordinary meaning of resides, for example, looking at that intention element, you could easily see then that people didn't intend to stay in Australia. They were just stuck in Australia until they could they could leave again. Um, So, yeah, there was something to be said about the 
the concept of residing, having to look at physical presence and intention to then giving a really good reflex then as to whether somebody should be a resident from yep. a policy point of view. Um, and um, as we see under the new rules, we go away from that a lot. We get yeah, some bright, bright lines. lines. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess then where are we up to now? So um, we've had, um, a, you know, we've had a change of government. We've got this consultation paper happening right now. Where are things up to? Yeah. So um, as you said, there was, a, there was a whole stack of activity after that May 2021 announcement from the, the government. Um, we get a new government in the the meantime. Um, we get lots of expats contacting us to, yeah, like- <laughs> to say, what's the go with the new rules? Um, the number of conversations that I've had with people about the proposed new rules when at the moment, I mean, they're still on a whiteboard really in terms yeah. of the, the certainty that they'll come in and the form in which they'll come in. Mm. So really we still have to be mindful of that we're operating under existing rules at the moment. And, yes, certainly we need to consider what will happen if the new rules did come in because that will affect taxpayers in some circumstances, but we can't forget the the existing rules. So I think where we're up to now is that um, the current consultation process uh, that Treasury is undertaking will really give a message to the government as to whether or not they want to proceed with the amendments. And I think what's changed compared to when the previous government announced it was that we've had COVID, we've had these tests that have come out of the federal court that make it look really clear as to what the the rules are. Um, And most recently, there's a fair bit of criticism as to the proposed new rules. Mm. So um, it's one of those things that everybody was critical of the old rules when they couldn't get a read in terms of what the cases were going to to deliver. Um, But the problem with bright lines is that if you're on the wrong side of a bright line, your your case is that much tougher. Longer to argue to get on the other side. Suddenly you've gone from having a reasonable argument to no argument. Um, So, um, yeah, and there's parts of the new rules. And, again, it's careful not to be overly critical of the proposed new rules because they are still at the conceptual stage, Hmm. but in their their current form um, they won't work um, in a lot of circumstances or or won't produce the result that people expect in the current circumstances. Yeah. And then I think at the same time, yeah, we've got a a final ruling TR 2023 slash one this year, which sort of cements the commissioner's views on the, you know, the current rules and how they apply, um, when you're assessing an individual's residency, tax residency. So they're obviously based on the current law and sort of update a lot of those older, um, IT documents and rulings documents post all of the decisions that have come out. Yeah. One of the interesting parts that I found with that is that when the draft of that tax ruling came out, um, you know, again, with respect, it's a pretty good ruling. It's a pretty yeah. good summary of the the previous position where the case law had updated that, some new references to the more recent cases. But what I found really interesting is during the consultation process, it wasn't a huge amount of pushback on the examples. So when the um, professionals were asked to to comment in terms of the examples that the commissioner had provided in the public ruling, nobody had any serious problems with the, the conclusions that were being reached in those examples, which indicates to me then that maybe we're not so far apart in terms of the correct application of the law in these circumstances as perhaps 10 years ago when we just didn't have the same level of education 
Yeah, and probably the same volume too. I mean, if you think yeah. ten years ago, before you know, before all of those audits happened, out of you know, from two thousand and nine, ten, eleven, there's probably a big bank of examples and bank of data there from both sides that people yeah. have had to grapple with um, different fact circumstances. Yeah, I think that's right because you can see the the cases that the taxpayers lose are then lessons for the the taxpayer and the tax and the cases that the commissioner loses are then examples for the the commissioner. Um, and then we we just get a narrowing then as to what the dispute territory is between those two sets of examples. Yeah. All right. This is probably a good time for a quick break. So um, after the break, we'll dive into the detail of the modernised rules. It's very exciting, exciting. stuff. <laughs> Okay, welcome back everyone. So before the break we were talking about, I guess, where the uh, existing law is sitting and uh, the new rules that have been spoken about since around 2016-17. So I want to dive into those new rules, Fletch. Now, the first two rules are pretty straightforward. They're based on bright lines, objective factors, things that everyone can count. What's the first rule? Well, good question. Bright lines because, yes, they're a bright line, but are they? Are they a bright line? Because our, our first test is that we say we need these bright lines because we want simplicity and certainty. So the primary test will be a 183-day test, no problem. Um, but then the commission's got the discretion to disregard certain days in certain circumstances. So, again, potentially somebody goes over the day count and then we're going to the commissioner seeking uh, permission for different days to get disregarded. Ooh, and what are those circumstances? Well, I think they'll, they'll end up being in sort of compassionate um, circumstances where somebody has ended up having to stay in Australia for more days than they otherwise uh, anticipated. Um, missing your flight doesn't count as no. compassionate circumstances. Um, <laughs> miscounting the days doesn't, doesn't count as compassionate circumstances, but there's still this discretion that's inbuilt into the 183-day test, um, which uh, ironically is then not in the 45-day test when we get to talk about that. Okay, don't skip ahead too far. No, okay, yeah. I won't. Um, don't spoil the surprise. Um, the second test that we've got uh, relates to particular Commonwealth officials, so it's an updating of the current test that we've got for PSS and CSS employees. Um, and we'll broaden that test to Commonwealth officials. So really we can put those two tests into separate baskets in terms of if you've, yes, we will count the days and that will give us a bright line in most cases, um, or somebody will satisfy the, the Commonwealth officials test and be caught. Okay, great. So tests one and two are pretty simple, but then we get to something uh, that's a bit different very interesting. And the next two rules are sort of divided then between uh, what happens when you become a tax resident of Australia. Um, and that's when we need to check uh, whether or not we spend 45 days or more in Australia in an income year and then ceasing Australian tax residency. So can we look through the first one of those, run through the first one of those? Um, you, know, mentioned, you mentioned before the 45 day test. So it seems like we can count 45 days easily enough. I mean, I might need an abacus or a calculator, but I'll get there. <laughs> Um, yeah, the I think the difficult part for both sets of rules, just at a, a threshold issue, is that they start at the position that you need to know what you were last income year. Yeah. So if you get last income year's assessment wrong for whatever reason, then you're starting on a pretty rocky foundation. And I can just imagine a fact pattern where somebody has thought they're a non-resident for, let's say, the 2023 income year. Um and then is applying the trying to 
apply the, the test as to whether they started to become a tax resident in the 2024 income year. Potentially they're in the wrong test though, because if actually they were already a tax resident in 2023, we'd be looking at them ceasing residency. Ceasing residency. Mm. So um, yes, some simple rules in terms of the, the factors, but some pretty rocky ground to start with in that if we've got a dispute over a previous income year, um, we might be in trouble. So um, yeah, that first test really 45 days uh, is the, the threshold part of it. So at the moment, the proposed new rules don't give you any leeway that if you miss those days. Um, and then there's four factors. So the first factor is um, whether you're essentially an Australian citizen or permanent resident rights. Um, the sef- second factor is whether you've got accommodation available to you in Australia. Um, the, the third factor then picks up um, economic interests, including employment in- interests, and then the, the other factor relates to um, dependent family. So um, you know, in many cases, somebody who has been a non-resident who's Australian, even if they've been a non-resident for the past 20 years, with an Australian passport, you only need one of those other factors mm. and your days to be 45 or more and then suddenly you're back in the Australian tax net. Um, yeah. So you said before that the commissioner had the discretion to effectively exclude some days out of our 183-day test. That doesn't count for the 45-day no, test. So no. if we're here for compassionate grounds for 10 days but we've already been in the country for 35, we're, yeah, yeah. okay. Stuck. All right then. Um, well, that is an interesting uh, situation. I'm thinking about, I guess, a, a, just a practical example. So um, I'm an Australian citizen. I hold an Australian passport. It's recently been updated and um, I took care of that life admin, which was nice. um, awfully helpful. Um, say that my husband, Corey, and I have been living in Hong Kong for the last five years. My birthday is in early December. It's coming up. Noted, um, noted. I've yep. got that down. Yep. You should. So, I mean, the easy solution for me is to come back and see family in December um, to coincide with the Christmas period. So, say I come back sort of in the last week of November um, and I'm in town for six weeks, let's just assume that that's 42 days exactly, mm-hmm. I then have to take an unexpected trip to Australia before the end of the financial year. Mm-hmm. I'm here for a week, so I'm over that 45-day period. Yep. I've got an investment property that I trust own, so I don't own it in my own name. Does that mean I'm suddenly a resident yes. under these new rules? Yes, it does. So you're over 45 days and you're ticking two of the factors being your citizenship and um, then your Australian economic interests. And for trusts, I mean, at the moment it's defined to include essentially a discretionary beneficiary of a trust will be deemed to have an economic interest, which is um, probably not sustainable in terms of a, a test. I think there's probably some further work that's got to be done to refine that down to you know, a better idea of controlling the trust mm. or something like that. But at the moment, um, that would make you an Australian tax resident. Now, the consequence of that, of course, is that it means that your foreign employment income will be brought to tax in Australia. Um, it will mean that all of your investments that you and Corey have in Hong Kong will also fall within the CGT net from mm. that time on. Um, yes, you'll get the market values of those investments at the date that you come in to set their cost bases. But assuming that this is a one-off and then when we get to the ceasing residency test, you're back out, um, 
we've then got to do I1 calculations for these because, you know, let's just say you've got an investment property in Hong Kong plus some um, investments in Hong Kong, you're going to need to pay capital gains tax or account for capital gains tax on those assets. And if you don't, they're going to be taxable Australian property and courts within the CGT net forever. Forever and ever. <laughs> it's a pretty sobering analysis, really. Um, okay, so that's me becoming a resident. How do I stop being, how do I cease being an Australian resident then under those new rules? Yeah, good question. And um, again, it's probably not as simple as the the headlines try and make it out to be. So mm. for ceasing residency, there's two types of residency you can either have been a short-term resident or a long-term resident. And we have to go down two completely separate paths, depending on whether you're a short-term resident or a long-term resident. So the the short-term resident means that you've been an Australian tax resident for three years or less, three income years or less. Um, and to become a non-resident then, um, you have to be in Australia um, no more than 45 days. So you can't meet the 45-day test yep. for the income year. Um, and you can only have one or no factors. So the problem that you would have in your circumstances here is that you're going to get caught in this loop where you've been brought into the Australian tax net because you were over 45 days in that particular income year. Then you've been brought in. You now can't get out because you're still going to have, well, in this case, two factors, yeah. even if your days are then then under. Presumably, unless I sell an investment property or move my family somewhere else or give up my passport and give up my citizenship. Exactly. Some <laughs> extreme um, outcomes to that. So, um, yeah, there, there's a bit of a design flaw in that as well because it will keep you stuck in that loop then if your circumstances mm. otherwise don't change until you're eventually in the long-term resident test. So <laughs> so we could have you, you know, still living and working in Hong Kong for this whole period of time you had 48 days in one income year and then suddenly you can't get out under the short-term ceasing residency test. Then you're under the long-term residency test and um, your favourite topic of adhesiveness <laughs> <laughs> because you'd never think that you would uh, use the word adhesive in tax policy means that then you're stuck in Australia for essentially three income years. Yep. So um, regardless of your factors. So the ceasing long-term residency test, we're not looking at the factor test at all. We're just looking then at whether um, you're under 45 days um, for the current income year and the previous two income years. Now, that's all subject to what they call the overseas employment rule, mm -hmm. um, which uh, will kick in if you've got overseas employment lined up for uh, two years or more. It's got to be permanent, um, and that would then allow you to be a non-resident from the time that you've got that employment. But, of course, the issue with that for the overseas employment rule is that you, know, you might be okay under the overseas employment rule um, if Corey's um, contracting. Um, does he qualify then because he's not an employee? Um, if he's house husbanding, does he qualify for that? So potentially we get different results depending on whether somebody's, um, you know, their particular personal circumstances, which is you know, pretty counterintuitive. Um, when you're trying to figure out whether somebody's a resident or not, like it wouldn't make one, it wouldn't make sense for the working spouse to be caught by the overseas employment, or sorry, to get the benefit of the overseas employment rule, yeah. and the non-working spouse um, to still be a tax resident of Australia while they're living and working overseas. <laughs> 
Would be strange. Okay, so you did raise uh, my favourite topic about residency being adhesive and the strength of that adhesiveness. Where did that come from? Where's that concept of, you know, your residency sticking to you? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea that your residency is supposed to stick with you. And we saw that in a lot of the ATO submissions um, in some of those residency cases that were going around from 2011 to, to 2014 and the gathering of connections that would then say, well, once you become a resident, that residency clings with you despite mm. the fact that you're not physically present in Australia. And that really as a concept has been cleared up following the the federal court decisions that we were talking about earlier. So, um, I mean, from a policy point of view, the idea that residency sticks to you doesn't really have a sound basis in any sort of policy. So from a if we look at it from an OECD point of view and what other countries are doing, like a lot of the people that, um, sorry, a lot of the countries where Australians would become expats in, they'll, they'll start with a day count test. Yep. So you know, it's a bit silly that if they start being a tax resident um, in the foreign jurisdiction and Australia tries to cling on to their residency for up to three years, there's no real proper policy basis for that approach. Mm. And I, I don't think it's in the case law and I don't think it's in the explanatory notes that um, for when those tests were first handed down at the start of last century, it's just not there. No, no. Okay, so um, I'm conscious that Australia doesn't have a double taxation agreement, a DTA, with Hong Kong. Say you put um, the example that we were talking about before with um, Corey and I, um, but we suddenly sit in Singapore. Does the analysis change because of the fact that, yeah, there's a Australia has a DTA with Singapore and how do we go about it? Yeah, good question. So it's um – Complicated. (laughs) It's your favourite. It depends. (laughs) It's very complicated. Um, As the rules were originally proposed, um, the if there was an inconsistency between a double tax agreement and what the new rules were going to do, what the new domestic rules were going to do, um, the new rules would then align everything to the double tax agreement position. Yep. So um, just to take a step back, the double tax agreement. Um, contains a series of tiebreaker tests. So if we're in Singapore, for example, um, Singapore's got a day count. So you become a tax resident of Singapore based on the number of days you're in Singapore um, in a calendar year. Um, If you still were an Australian tax resident under our domestic legislation, then the DTA would step in and the tiebreaker tests would then say, oh, well, you're a tax resident of either Singapore or Australia, depending on the outcome for particular tiebreaker tests. But that's only for the purpose of the particular articles of income in the DTA. And what recently came out in the last couple of months um, from the most recent consultation process is the government said, no, 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 we don't want to align the domestic law with the DTA position because that's all all too complicated. (laughs) The problem is it's going to be more complicated if you don't align it because what's going to happen is we're going to be advising people who are in Singapore, for example, to say, okay, well, here's your position under the DTA. Um, the tiebreaker tests deem you to be solely a tax resident of Singapore under the DTA, for example. You're going to get separate advice then as to what your tax position is under the Australian domestic law. And then we're going to have to work out whether it's the DTA or the domestic law that's telling you what to do with the particular items of income or gains. So, you know, employment income will be determined by the DTA. Um, if you then tried to sell your main residence, well, that's going to be determined by the domestic law or 
the income on your investment property will be dealt with by the Australian domestic law. So seems messy. Yeah, yeah, not simple, not certain. Seems complicated, and seems to me that it can produce some. You know, oh, well, I guess if if the alignment, say the alignment does occur, say that the new rules are aligned with the position under the DTAs, um, I guess what are the what are the results? You know, um, it, it seems to me that we could remove some strange situations, but if that doesn't happen, what Absolutely. can you foresee? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if it's, if they align the new rules with the DTA, we're just going to get a more consistent result. So yep. if the, the aim of this exercise, if it is to make the rules simpler and more certain, really the government needs to adopt the border taxes recommendation that, that you align the domestic position with the, the DTAs. Um, if we don't do that, we're just going to have an extra layer of complexity, which, um, you know, as we under, as we know from practice, the more complicated that we make the the rules, the more areas that we've got non-compliance, and the more areas there are yep. for for dispute. So, um, and I think the harder it is just for taxpayers generally to understand what their obligations are if it, we've got that ever extra level of complexity. Yeah, specifically, I think also, you know, DTAs are not easy documents to read or analyse for advisors or taxpayers. You're looking at international treaties that have different rules of interpretation. So it's a completely different task in in my head, at least, to sort of that statutory interpretation piece that comes along with the Australian domestic tax law. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, that's probably a, you know, statutory interpretation topic for another day. Oh, I think we get to... um the that in the once we get into the tiebreaker tests in the the DTA, so the often the the first tiebreaker test will be that permanent home one. Do you have a permanent home in, for example, Singapore, and do you have it in Australia? Relatively straightforward yep. to identify whether a permanent home is available to you in one or either or none. Um, but if the second tiebreaker test is the habitual abode test, geez, that's tough. Um, we're back really, whether something's your habitual abode, um, you know, we've accepted in these scenarios that it's a permanent home available to you. At what point is it habitual and at what point is it just a place that you come and visit? Yeah, and do you know what? The um, the thing that I love the most when we start talking about the habitual abode tests under the DTAs is how similar it is to the ordinary concepts and the ordinary meaning of resides test. We're talking about similar sorts of things, yeah. which I think isn't, yeah probably very ironic in these circumstances. Um, but while we're on the topic of habitual abodes, did you want to run through, I guess, in a little bit more detail what that test generally involves? Yeah, so um, the I'll, I'll read out what it's got in the, the OECD commentary because um, actually has your French. I was going to say, please tell me you're going to read out the French bit because mine's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just ignore the French bit then. Um, but, I mean, see, the, the issue here is, and this, I laugh at it because I've had the ATO refer to this passage and particularly the French interpretation of the DTA. Um, but anyway, the, the, what they say is that the French version of the, the subparagraph provides a useful insight as to the meaning of habitual abode. I mean, in only the way that the French, the French language could, could do. Um, and it says that it's a notion that refers to the frequency, duration and regular regularity of stay, I can't even do the English version, <laughs> regularity of stays that are part of the settled routine of an individual's life and are therefore more than transient. 
So, yeah, as you say, we're, we're smack bang into ordinary meaning of the word resides type concepts there where we're looking at um, part of it being part of your settled routine. Mm. And then it probably goes on to say that you can have a habitual abode in both states. So what happens, I mean, if we're looking at the uh, tiebreaker tests and then we go to where the person's personal and economic relations are closer, um, that test is fraught, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. And, you know, if we just go back a step to we're now into two different difficult tiebreaker tests, habitual abode and personal and economic relations being closer. So um, I guess the, the other thing to mention is that for Australian citizens who are expats, um, I think that the top five countries where Australian citizens are living and working overseas at the moment, they're all countries where double tax agreements exist. So most of our expat population is going to be protected by a DTA in any event. The notable ones that aren't are Hong Kong and then the Middle East. Yeah. Um, so. You know, if we then end up in the the personal and economic relations test where your personal and economic relations are closer, I find that that can be a really um, difficult um, comparison to make often because typically we'll see a fact pattern where we've got one partner who's living and working overseas and generating the income from overseas and we'll have another partner potentially with dependent children in Australia. In Australia, yeah. Um, and so if we look at where the economic connections are closer, uh, they're often overseas. If we look at where the personal connections are closer, they're often in Australia. And it's a real waiting exercise then to figure out, you know, and the court talks about, well, you're not supposed to look at them as two separate categories. It's one phrase that you you interpret as one thing. So, um yeah, a lot of uncertainty if we're getting into that level of detail in the the tiebreaker tests. Yeah, and a good example of that, I think, is um, the federal court's decision in Pike, which involved um, the Zim- yeah, Mr. Pike was the Zimbabwean citizen from memory, mm-hmm. um, and his spouse was in Australia as well. So, what did the court? I mean, the court looked at this test in that case. What did they say? Yeah, so in Mr. Pike was so he made an application to say that he was um, a non-resident, and we got into the the tiebreaker test. So we had to go through the domestic mm. law test for all of that. Um, it was held to be a tax resident of Australia under the domestic law. Um, it was accepted that he had had a habitual abode in both um, Thailand and Australia. Um, interestingly, the commissioner in that case had argued that he didn't have a habitual abode in Thailand, but his days in Thailand were significant, like they're in the mid-200s, um, so he spent a lot of time in Thailand. So then we get to the personal and economic relations, a closer test, and in that case, the, the weight of factors fell to the conclusion that his personal and economic relations were closer to Thailand rather than Australia. And I think... Um, relative uh, was relevant to that conclusion that he was a Zimbabwean mm. citizen to start with, um, and so he hadn't grown up in Australia his whole life. Um, he had moved to Thailand for employment opportunities. But the other interesting part about that was when they were looking at the economic relations, they were really looking less at where the assets were and more where the income was being generated to produce the assets. Yeah. So less so the actual and the. The court just said, 
well, the assets that exist, that's just a byproduct of where the income was earned. So we're going to look at where the income was earned. So, yeah, so potentially there will be cases then where somebody's personal and economic relations are closer to the overseas jurisdiction than mm. Australia. Um, and, of course, you know, these types of cases are right on the borderline. And I can imagine that Thailand wouldn't be thrilled if they were told that he wasn't a tax resident of Thailand based on that that fact pattern. Um, but equally, we can see that the, the commissioner's trying to cling on to those taxpayers as tax residents of Australia because they can see a spouse in a house and dependent family here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we don't have any draft legislation yet on the new rules. Um, we'll wait to hear whether or not the government will proceed with the recommendations, I guess, out of the, the board's report. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do expats need to be, I guess, it's expats living overseas now, what do they need to be keeping an eye on? The main thing will be just to keep an eye on where the developments are going and in particular whether we get any feedback in terms of what the transitional provisions might look like. So the threshold issue will be will the new rules come into effect or not? And really for existing expats, the next set of rules will be, sorry, the next issue for them to consider will be what's it going to look like in terms of transitional provisions. And when the proposal first came out, it did indicate that there would be transitional provisions, but it essentially said further work's got to be done to figure out what they they what may be. involve, yeah. yeah. There's been a lot of submissions put in that the 45-day um, count is too low, um, but some of the alternatives, I suspect, just won't be accepted. They're, the the commission is unlikely to accept on behalf of the ATO's side of making submissions on it that day counts in the nature of 120 are a reasonable proxy. Mm. Um, so what about that rule of thumb 90 days? Yeah, I mean, the 90 days was a really interesting one because that was really our fact pattern in Harding's Harding. case. Mm. And one of the interesting things in Harding's case is that the income year before the one that was assessed and the income year after the one that was assessed, Mr Harding's days were much lower. They are in the, the 40s or the high 30s or something like that. And the commissioner was less interested in holding that he was a tax resident of those income years. So while ordinary meaning of resides doesn't have a day count attached to it. It certainly sits on a spectrum of risk so that mm. the higher the number of days, you know, and so <laughs> some unfortunate cases where people very diligently explain to us that their days are 181, 182 <laughs> and 179 in three successive income years and that therefore they're non-residents. <laughs> and we have to say, have to press the pause button at that point um, and say, oh, hang on, we've, we've missed the first test there. But um, you you can see a level of attraction in getting a, a day count um, in there. The the difficulty will be making sure that that day count is accurate. And I guess really the question though at the moment is, well, do we need these new rules at all now, or as a certainty that we've got from the recent case law? Yeah, and I also think the application of the rules, as you say, of the current law to, you know, some pretty extreme circumstances during COVID, um, I think it raises a very valid question, but we'll see. Yeah, yep. 
All right. Thanks, Fletch. So I think it's fair to say that assuming the rules are legislated in some form, I think that a lot of these disputes are really going to shift to an interpretation point or the application of the tiebreaker tests under the DTAs for our DTA countries. Um, It's certainly not an issue for taxpayers and advisors to grapple with under the existing law. Um, I'm not sure that that will shift too much if the new rules are legislated. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other thing that um, Australian citizens will need to consider, particularly those who are looking to take jobs in the the Middle East, um, will be that they'll need to fall squarely within that overseas employment rule, whatever that looks like. But I think we'll also have to be looking at more broadly, well, who else is going in terms of family members and are they going to get caught um, and... You know, it might be spouses, but it might also be that we've got teenage children who might be over going over there. Um, there's a whole stack of issues that really need to be considered. And in particular, do we have, you know, the number of times we've seen clients who have had to come back to Australia for an extended period of time because they've got elderly relatives who are mm-hmm. you know, suddenly very sick um, and that that means that they're in Australia for you know three or four weeks that they otherwise hadn't planned. Going to get some pretty um, pretty drastic consequences. Some pretty harsh results, that. yeah. All right, thank you. Um, so I think that's probably a good stage to wrap up. So thanks to everyone for listening into Taxland. We've spoken about uh, the residency laws in the under the Australian domestic legislation today for individuals, and uh, some consequences and some interesting analysis coming out of the new rules that uh, are being floated around at the moment and considered uh, in the consultation papers um, at the moment. So that's episode two done and dusted for Taxland. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, hope you can take something away, even if it's a dream about moving to a beach to start working overseas. And you've got to make sure that you take your dogs. That's the, uh, uh, the other test. Take the dogs and the spouse with you. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, but thanks for travelling to Taxland with me, Sarah Lancaster. And me, Fletch Heinemann. Bye for now. Bye for now.